electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan. Right now on Last Call, avoiding all obstacles, GM scores huge sales, but is something troubling lurking under the hood? Bob Iger's big win. Can a boardroom counter punch put Disney on a winning path for 2024? Jeffrey Epstein's list of names, hundreds of court documents are just being released. We have breaking developments. Crushing homeowners, insurance premiums set to skyrocket. Again, how much higher can they climb? Plus, go big or go home, where luxury real estate is primed to turn white hot. And an air travel shocker. This has not happened in the unfriendly skies for more than a decade. All that and more over the next hour. Last Call is up right now. Good evening. Tonight on Last Call, we are singing a new tune. There goes Santa Claus. There goes Santa Claus. Stocks keep sliding. The so-called Santa Claus rally comes to a screeching halt. The Dow fell 285 points today. It's worst day in two weeks. The Nasdaq dropped more than a percent. Tech stocks got crushed. The S&P 500 just wasn't any better. The broader index posted its second day of declines to kick off 2024. Now, the last time the S&P started the year with back-to-back losses was nine years ago. If history is any indication, that could spell trouble for investors. Since 2000, the S&P 500 has fallen the last two days of the Santa Claus rally period only five times, 2000, 2005, 2014, 2015, and now 2024. In each of those other years, the S&P finished with a January decline. But just two times did it also end that year in the red, according to our friend and colleague here, CNBC's Robert Hum. So it's really a coin flip if 2024 will end up on the naughty or nice list. It's the first time stocks have failed to achieve a Santa Claus rally in eight years. So what do you do with your money now? Let's talk about it with our leadoff panel. RES Asset Management Executive Chairman and Co-Founder Carrie Firestone and Fairlead Strategies Founder and Managing Partner Katie Stockton. Both are CNBC contributors. It's great to have you both. Let's start with you, Carrie. When we're talking about the indications to come, we like to read the tea leaves and the, the, the fact that the Santa Claus rally just lost steam is depressing for a lot of people. Well, Contessa, thank you for having me. Yes, depressing, but let's talk about a slightly longer period of time. How about even the fourth quarter? The market was up 11.7% from September 30th till the end of the year. That is huge. The S&P last year had a great year, was up 24%. So if we had all of the numbers 
for the Santa Claus rallies and what had happened in the fourth quarter and in the full year, you might see something that looked very different. So investors should be very happy about that. And maybe those investors who were so happy thought they would sell a few stocks at the beginning of the year. Do you think that's what we're seeing here, that, that we are kicking off 2024 and there's some major profit taking going on? I would think so. I mean, doesn't it make sense? If you had a stock that doubled, one of those magnificent seven who had a great, great year, and a stock doubled, why not take some profit now? I mean, it locks in a gain, but also think about the weight in your portfolio. If you had a 4% position, it's now 8%. Maybe that's more than you want to hold of that stock, Meta or NVIDIA. Katie, let's uh, let's go through it. I gave the past performance here and the statistics surrounding the Santa Claus rally, but read the tea leaves for me. How do you see January shaping up? Well, I mean, I felt I think that excuse me, I still think it's a happy new year. You know, the Santa Claus rally is a phenomenon. It's a seasonal phenomenon. And yet we have to take it within context. So the nine weeks preceding it, as mentioned, were higher for the S&P 500 index. And that's a very long rally. And it's really you know, a time at which I don't think people should be getting too greedy. It's natural to see consolidation ensue after that kind of rally. And that rally generated a lot of breakouts on the charts. We had breakouts, we had breath improve really very notably. And that means more stocks were up on up days. And we also saw more sectors participate as well. And that's a major shift for the market. And it's a bullish shift at that. So it's only natural to see some consolidation after such a major rally and such a prolonged rally and a steep one at that. And, you know, January may be lower, but I don't think that that should be interpreted as as an indication for the whole year because of those breakouts that preceded this consolidation, which really we are only two days into this new year. So to me, the two day, uh, you know, sort of takeaway really is is probably negligible, to be honest. We've had some damage to, you know, the, the positions that we're holding, and yet it's really just a retracement of what we've already seen. There's no big breakdowns mm. unfolding with this two-day uh, swoon. Katie, hi, it's Carrie. Uh, I'm curious, when you talked just now about the breath that we started to see at the end of the fourth quarter, is there anything that you're looking for technically that will confirm about the breath and the participation of the rest of the market or that would take away from that thesis if something were to break down on the downside? You know, we've already seen the breadth breakouts, and I'm talking about the cumulative advanced decline lines. They've reached new highs, and they've done so without the S&P 500 having done the same, and what that creates is a positive divergence. So I think the bullishness is sort of established already from these breadth metrics. They are a little bit overbought, as you can imagine, after such a big move. So a retracement is very natural, and I think very healthy for the market to see a little breadth contraction. And also the mega caps, relinquishing a little leadership here for maybe a couple of weeks, and we'll see more of the defensive stocks and sectors step up to sort of pick up some slack. We're already seeing that in healthcare to some degree, and even some consumer staples are kicking in a little bit. We have energy stocks doing a bit better here near term. So there is still rotation that I think will prevent a breakdown for the market. For the S&P 500, there is good support on the chart right around 4,600, and that's not really far below current levels. 
Carrie, uh, I was reading through your column on CNBC.com today, and you said you're looking for opportunities in industrials and financials and healthcare. Where and, and what can propel those opportunities? Yeah, so those are three sectors that underperformed last year where we see opportunities. You know, if you think about healthcare uh, as an example, healthcare was only up 2% last year, and there's the cloud of price controls and what might happen if drug companies can't raise prices. They've also had difficulty getting new drugs approved, anything that is a blockbuster status except for the weight loss drugs. Mm -hmm. And so now maybe we're seeing something that will feel better. You have those drugs, Ozempic, Wagovi. Maybe there are going to be deals coming through with biotech companies getting purchased by the major drug companies. Uh, deal making and new drugs could start to make a difference this year for the drug companies that suffer very, very low multiples. Merck, Bristol Myers, Pfizer, these have really been under pressure. So something to think about on financial services with interest rates going higher, these stocks suffered. We had the banking crisis where we had the banks fall apart like Silicon Valley and, and First Republic. These, the big banks are all cheap. We own Schwab, for example. We think it's attractive here. All right, Carrie Firestone, thank you very much for joining us. Katie, great to see you. Appreciate your take. Let's take Me a look too. now at the studs and duds. The biggest winner of the day, Eli Lilly, up 4.3% on an analyst note that, as Carrie was saying, its weight loss drug, Zepbound, could take market share from Ozempic. The biggest loser, though, Massachusetts lab company, Waters Corp, dropped 6.9%. And after this down day for stocks, let's take a look at the futures. There you're seeing it flat, but in the green. <laughs> Coming up, the Magic Kingdom's battle for the boardroom. Has a major win for Bob Iger brightened Disney's prospects for 2024? Plus, the new warning light for GM on EVs. Stay with us. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. We have some fast-moving developments in the ongoing battle for the boardroom. At Disney, the company has now gained the support of activist hedge funds Value Act Capital and Blackwell's Capital. Blackwell says it nominated three directors to Disney's board that all support its current path and CEO Bob Iger's turnaround efforts. The move helps Disney defend itself against a board challenge. 
Tryon Fund Management's Nelson Peltz has been fighting for a seat on that board, along with former Disney CFO Jay Rizzullo, claiming that Iger's strategies aren't working. So what does the news mean for Bob Iger's high-stakes plan to revive Disney's fortunes? Joining me now, the first president of NBC Cable, founder of CNBC, former TiVo CEO, currently the editor-at-large of Newsweek, Mr. Tom Rogers. Hi, Tom. Great to be here. Happy New Year. Do you think that uh, the fact that Bob Iger has lined up support will be enough to protect him from the onslaught and the interest of the likes of Nelson Peltz? Uh, no, but it's uh, a good building block toward being able to have the support he'll need to defeat this. Um, neither of the two that uh, settled up with Disney or at least uh, indicated support for Disney um, have uh, enough votes here to be meaningful when it comes to that. Uh, but certainly being able to flip a couple activists uh, into your court uh, but well before voting starts, is a signal to other shareholders that uh, management may win this thing and it's less likely for others to join Peltz if it becomes clear that uh, Iger and the Disney board are going to win this. Uh, Disney says that its deal with Value Act will be to advise on strategy and to support its director nominees at the annual shareholder meeting. I I'm just curious about the strategy part of this. At this point, what kind of advice could they give? Well, I think that's a good point. I'm not sure that uh, this particular fund, even though it has more media experience, presumably, than uh, Nelson's Peltz Group does, is uh, going to have the answers to what Disney has to do. Because the answers for what Disney has to do uh, are not only Disney issues, but for all major legacy media companies. They're all facing the same forces of cord cutting, diminished ad sales, uh, streaming services that uh, are not demonstrating the kind of growth they need in order to overcome the decline of the legacy business. So, uh, you know, Iger's dealing with a host of problems. Uh, I think this was more about a fund that uh, tends to work more with management uh, than not and uh, getting some kind of uh, consulting fee as part of the settlement. Tom, what should investors pay attention to? Well, I think the thing to pay attention to here is I'd be very surprised if Nelson Peltz within the next month did not issue some kind of white paper with his uh, prescription for what Disney ought to be doing. Uh, and I don't think this time around uh, cost cuts or uh, dividend restoration is going to be the way to be able to win over other shareholders. I think he's going to have to come up with a compelling vision that is different than Bob Iger's. The issue is, what is Bob Iger's? They've kind of flip-flopped on a number of issues. Uh, sell ABC, not sell ABC. Mm -hmm. Sell Hulu, uh, now integrate Hulu. And the big one hanging out there is, what do they do about ESPN? ESPN is really a totally different animal than the entertainment and parks flywheel of Disney. And it costs a lot of money to continue to bid on sports rights and continue to drive a business which nobody has a whole lot of confidence. Sports as a streaming service and the amount that would have to be charged for it is going to be successful. So it'll be very interesting to see what Nelson Peltz put at, puts out. Iger is going to have to come up, I think, with a clear vision if it's going to counter that. And the 
uh, compelling view of each is how this is uh, going to play out. Next time we talk, we're going to talk about sports betting and whether sports betting buys sports more time. Tom Rogers, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks Still ahead, having. strikes, high costs, soaring interest rates, EV woes. Hey, no problem. GM defies the odds for a big sales crown. But a bumpy road may lie ahead. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Despite soaring interest rates, a bruising union strike, and a lot of other headwinds, General Motors just finished its best sales year since 2019. CNBC's Phil LeBeau joins us now with more. Phil? Contessa, we got December and fourth quarter auto sales today from GM and a number of automakers. And here's the good news. This is an industry that continues to accelerate. You mentioned 2019 for GM. It's the best year since 2019 for the industry as a whole. In fact, look at where sales came in for all of 2023. 15.6 million vehicles were sold last year. And again, that's the best since 2019. Three automakers we want to highlight. Let's start first off with General Motors. Fourth quarter sales only up fractionally, 0.3%. In fact, they were down 7.3% compared to the third quarter. But the good news is that they picked up market share, finished number one in the U.S. Honda, December sales were up 31.5%. We saw this from a number of the Japanese automakers. They had strong fourth quarters, strong December. Toyota is another good example. Fourth quarter sales up 15.4%. But here's the stat of the day. In December, hybrid sales for Honda or for Toyota up 63%. Hybrids are hot right now. We have talked about it for some time. In 2023, internal combustion engine vehicles still dominate the market, but their market share is down to 84%. There you see hybrids outselling EVs. Hybrids almost 10% of the market. We'll hear more about hybrids and EVs and more from Ford when it reports its results tomorrow morning. Contessa? Well, speaking of Ford, it also announced it's adjusting the pricing of its F-150 Lightning EV by thousands yep. of dollars. The price for some of the 2024 models fill apparently going up, while the cost for the most expensive models are going down. What's with the switcheroo? Yeah. Well, it's not a switcheroo. I, I, this, this is a case where Ford has been adjusting the prices on the F-150 Lightning and its other models as the market dictates. And remember, they had to slash their prices in part in response to what was happening from Tesla and from other companies as they were lowering prices on electric vehicles. The demand is growing for the F-150 Lightning, so they're taking the base model price from $49,000, bringing it up to $54,000. And on the higher end, the most expensive trim levels, they're bringing them down a little bit. Okay, Phil, thank you for the update. We'll be waiting for earnings tomorrow. Appreciate that. Well, despite the impressive top-line numbers, some serious questions are swirling around GM's EV unit. Sales of all electric vehicles totaled a little more than 75,000 units, up notably from 2022 
but it still only adds up to 2.9% of the company's overall sales. And the majority of those sales were from the now discontinued Chevy Bolt models. This year, GM has plans to boost EV production and sales. The company's offering $7,500 in incentives on EVs that lost the U.S. government tax credit this week due to new sourcing requirements. But it's potentially costly move for a unit that isn't even profitable yet. In November, GM CFO said current margins on electric vehicles are, in his words, substantially negative. So is the company only setting itself up to lose more money, or is it really making a smart play here for an electrified future? Joining me now is Auto Trader Executive Editor Brian Moody. Thank you for being here on Last Call, Brian. Thank you. How do you read into the EV unit performance? Well, for one thing, we know that electric vehicle sales are going to continue to grow throughout 2024. However, they aren't going to continue to grow or we haven't seen the targets met that automakers like GM had hoped. So it's not that no one wants an electric vehicle. Many people do, but they're just not selling at the rate that they had either anticipated or promised. Are price changes enough to coax people onto the lots for EVs? For some people, yes. For early adopters and for those that own their own home, the answer is yes. For many others, the answer is simply no, because there's too many questions. For example, charging times. It isn't just about where do I charge. It's about how long does it take to charge. You may have heard this statistic where if you go and charge your car on a road trip with an electric car, it may only take an extra 30 to 40 minutes. Okay, that's not that much. Unless you're a parent with toddlers, then it sounds like a nightmare. So for some people, it's going to work perfect. Other people, they're not so convinced that hybrids are probably the way to go in the future. In October, GM had abandoned its plans of building 400,000 EVs by the middle of this year. Are production issues largely put aside and, and that's no longer the biggest factor? Well, I think one of the things is that they we're just not seeing the demand that had been anticipated. And what seems to be happening in some cases is they're leading with ideology, not just with good consumer products. The way to make electric vehicles successful is just simply make them better, less expensive, more performance, more reliability, and more car for the money. We're not there yet. And that is probably the biggest issue right now. And the, this issue about offering $7,500 as an incentive, do you think that we're likely to see that from other automakers? Yes. In fact, I think that going into 2024, we're going to see a lot more of that from electric car makers. For example, there's going to be many more models, but there will also be more discounts, more incentives, and more ways, more advertising also, more ways of getting people into the showroom. They may even incentivize some of these electric car purchases with things like free chargers or low financing, as you see with traditional powered cars. So more discounts for sure is what's coming for electric vehicles. Brian, how much attention are you paying to resale values of these EVs? Resale value is very important. In fact, the used market for EV is going to be huge in the coming year. One of the things that's conspiring against both new and used cars is the high interest rate and the high prices of the cars. Buying a used electric car can be a way to defray that cost, but many consumers have told us they're concerned about buying an electric vehicle that's outside of warranty. So most electric cars have an eight-year or 100,000-mile warranty for the batteries and the powertrain. So the first two owners are going to be fine. It's after that. What about a 100,000-mile electric car? 
that's the part that remains unseen. And yes, people are concerned about that. Brian, it's good to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. A quick programming note here. Tune in tomorrow for a must-see last call with a special live show from Miami. Brian will be there, Brian Sullivan, to speak with Chevron CEO Michael Wirth, Royal Caribbean CEO Jason Liberty, billionaire real estate investor Don Peebles, and the head of oil research at Goldman Sachs, Don Stroyman, to get his take on where oil and gas may be heading this year, along with special guests throughout the day. So tomorrow, a Miami edition of Last Call live at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You won't want to miss that. Coming up, the Jeffrey Epstein list is out. Sealed court documents are now being revealed. There are names, and we are parsing through the details. We have it for you next. Tomorrow's news tonight, the stories that just may motivate Wall Street tomorrow. And first up, Mark Zuckerberg sold more than $400 million worth of Meta shares in the last two months of 2023. According to a regulatory filing, he sold 1.28 million shares for about $428 million. And it's the first time he's sold shares of Meta since November 2021. Meta is up more than 175 percent over last year. Next up, SpaceX accused by a federal labor agency of illegally firing eight employees who spoke out against CEO Elon Musk. Those employees circulated a letter in June 2022 calling Musk a distraction and an embarrassment. The National Labor Relations Board says their firing violated workers' rights to organize and advocate for better working conditions. If SpaceX does not settle the case before a scheduled hearing in March, an administrative judge could take up the case. And then finally tonight, a major legal disclosure. Court documents were just unsealed, revealing the identities of more than 150 people with ties to Jeffrey Epstein, the deceased sex trafficker and disgraced financier. There is so much interest in the story that the website to view these documents crashed and it's still down. We can report there are 40 exhibits which are believed to pertain to multiple individuals that have been released, and those exhibits encompass hundreds of pages of filings in the case. Joining me now, a reporter who's been covering this case extensively for the Wall Street Journal, Khadija Safdar. Khadija, I know that you're going through some of the paperwork right now. I, I want to mention that when names come up, they don't necessarily indicate any wrongdoing or any semblance of wrongdoing, just that they have been associated with Jeffrey Epstein in some way, shape or form. What are you seeing? So you're exactly right. I think there's been just a lot of misinformation on social media um, calling this an Epstein client list. And I think people were expecting to see a neat list of people um, associated with Epstein. But what these are just um, court documents that we often see when we're covering court cases, and they were recently unsealed. So we're seeing lots of exhibits, discovery requests, depositions. Um, so I think what's going to be required is that we'll have to parse through these documents to discuss, to find out what's new um, and what's newsworthy. There are some names, familiar names that we've come across, for example, like Bill Clinton, but I'm not sure that um, the information yet is new. So I'll have to parse through those to see if there's anything new that we um, know about him. Um, I think a lot of people's relationship with Epstein at this point is really well documented. Yeah. And in fact, the judge in this case had said part of the motivation in unsealing the documents is that it was public already 
so there was, you know, there was no compelling interest in, in keeping them sealed. So we know that there's interest in finding out what the documents reveal about former President Bill Clinton, former President Donald Trump, another well-known associate of Jeffrey Epstein, as well as Britain's Prince Andrew. Um, I said that there were 40 exhibits. And can you give us a sense of what they what they come from, what they might entail? So there's like it's it's sort of typical stuff that you see when um, documents are unsealed in a case like email exchanges. There's discovery requests like people that um, lawyers might suspect have information related to the case. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have information. You have to kind of wait, uh, go through the rest of the documents to see what is known. And then other besides that are depositions. So that would be like where people are questioned about their knowledge of a case. It doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily provide information when they're being questioned. My understanding is uh, only Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, his longtime female friend and the woman uh, who allegedly was responsible for procuring many of the women that were associated with him, are the people who were charged in this case. Have legal experts told you that they anticipate any other criminal charges coming out of these legal documents, that they could reveal anything new? I haven't heard that so far. Um, there have been civil cases, and obviously some one of the big ones this year were the um, lawsuits that were filed by Jeffrey Epstein's victims against the banks. Um, and I think the J.P. Morgan one um, we've spoken about extensively and also reported on that. Um, so, And I think that potentially there could be more civil cases filed against individuals or institutions. I don't know. But, um, but I have not heard anything about criminal Okay, um, charges so far. Virginia Dufresne uh, Dufre was one of the women who had accused Jeffrey Epstein of wrongdoing, and she filed suit against Ghislaine Maxwell as well. Uh, th this has been a case that has really unfolded over years and years. It's hard to imagine that there's anything we don't know. I mean, it's like a onion almost, like where you just keep peeling and peeling and obviously new details help you link, make other links. But the Wall Street Journal, I mean, we've spent the good part of the past year um, learning about Jeffrey Epstein's circle, especially after his 2008 conviction, because those were people who were associating with him after he was already a registered sex offender. And uh, many new names came out in that reporting and we've covered them. And as you said, it, the network was so wide and vast and included so many politicians, celebrities, business people. Um, so, I mean, and and that story, it showed how he was using his VIP circle, which was he was using them to lure women and offer job opportunities that he often ended up not providing to them. Khadija, thank you so much for sharing the results of your reporting. And I know that you've got a lot of reading in front of you. Thank you for spending a few minutes with us. Thank you so much. Coming up, the crushing cost of home insurance takes a turn for the worse in a major state. Others may be close behind. Plus, put out the welcome mat where luxury real estate is setting up to go on a tear. Stay with us. It was a rough day for real estate. In fact, the worst performing sector in the S&P 500 after falling more than 2%. A big reason, interest rates. 
The 10-year Treasury yield briefly topped 4% today, but it fell later in the session after the Fed minutes suggested that rate hikes are over. It all comes after the broader housing market had a rocky 2023, but there was a bright spot, luxury real estate. CNBC's wealth editor Robert Frank has more on how the high end held up. Robert? Hey, Contessa, well, Manhattan home prices rising for the first time in over a year, driven largely by the high end. Median sales prices rose 5% in the fourth quarter to $1.16 million. That's according to new data from Douglas Elliman and Miller Samuel. The average price for a Manhattan apartment also increased to just over $2 million. The total number of sales, though, fell due to a lack of inventory. Sales volume dropping 6% in the quarter and 29% for the year. But sales above $5 million, well, they actually increased in the quarter. Most of those are wealthy buyers. They pay cash, so they're not as reliant on mortgage rates. In fact, two-thirds of all apartments sold in the quarter were all cash. That marked a new record for Manhattan. Meanwhile, nationwide, the ultra-high end held up fairly well last year. There were 34 homes sold in the U.S. for more than $50 million, and five sold for over $100 million. Most of those were in Palm Beach, the Hamptons, Connecticut, and other hot spots for the wealthy. The most expensive deal of the year was a $190 million sale of an oceanfront home in Malibu, California. The buyers, Jay-Z and Beyonce. It had been listed for $295 million. So, Contessa, they saved $100 million. Ooh. Back to you. Ooh, Robert, thank you. Meantime, California's largest home insurer, State Farm, is raising rates in the state by an average of 20% this year. The new rates go into effect March 15th. In a statement, State Farm has said these rate changes are driven by increased costs and risk and are necessary for State Farm Mutual Automobile Insurance Company and State Farm General Insurance Company to deliver on the promises the companies make. Now, customers can always shop around to find better rates, but an increasing number of insurers are either limiting coverage or ceasing new policies in the state, State Farm included. Just last year, the insurer announced it would stop writing new policies in California. It's not just a problem in California, of course. Homeowners in other high-risk states like Florida, Texas, and Colorado often struggle to find carriers that are willing to offer full coverage insurance, or they find that the rates they would have to pay are simply astronomical. It's gotten to a point where real estate investors in Florida are sounding the alarm, warning if rates keep rising, it'll become harder to get a mortgage in riskier areas. And in fact, it's killing deals. We reported on that last year. So do homeowners have a way to combat rising costs? Joining us now with more is Arthur J. Gallagher, Property Practice Managing Director, Martha Bain. Martha, I just want to say that A.J. Gallagher is a, a big global brokerage. And so part of your job and those of your colleagues is to talk to your clients, find out what they need for insurance coverage, and then go help them find it through these carriers. Is that a hard job? Absolutely, Contessa, and I think 2023 was probably the hardest property market that we've seen, some people even say in a generation, uh, for commercial and personal lines, um, insurers or clients that bought property insurance. Uh, we saw rates skyrocket, uh, you know, well in excess of 20% for some clients, especially those in catastrophe-prone areas, like you mentioned, like California and Florida, but it's not just impacting those states. 
and those clients in those states that are exposed to those events anymore, it, it's a global phenomenon and it's also impacting others around the country. According, really tough market. I mean, the, the thing is, we're talking about a 20% rate hike in California where the insurance commissioner for years has said no to rate hikes or no to rate hikes that would be appropriate for the amount of risk, for the amount of damage, for the amount of losses that insurers were paying on. In Florida, there's a, a, a similar situation in terms of hurricane risk, but the, the issues there were that litigation had skyrocketed and that was costing insurers so much that regulation was interfering. And basically, when insurers can't earn enough on premiums to cover the losses, they wash their hands and they leave. That creates problems yeah. as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. They either retreat from the market, reduce the capacity that they're willing to offer, and that then pushes those buyers into the non-standard property market, which, generally speaking, is several times more expensive than the standard you know, property insurers in these states. So we've seen some reform in Florida that's improving that situation. Uh, we've also seen some um, potential, you know, bright spots for 2024, uh, 2023, although it was a another historic year for property insured losses. Um, several carriers will have done well from a property standpoint, and we do expect uh, to see some improvement. However, we expect the market to continue um, and the carriers to push for rates um, as, as we move forward into 2024. I, I mentioned some of the other problem states, um, Texas and Colorado, Louisiana is one of them. We saw this massive wildfire on Maui. We saw a freak winter storm that did so much damage in Texas a couple winters ago. And then last year, globally, what was it? Like two-thirds of the global insured losses came from convective storms, basically thunderstorms, right? Are the climate risks changing what homeowners need to prepare for in terms of insuring their homes? Yeah, I mean, last year was a $100 billion event for the insurance industry, and that's the sixth out of the past seven years where those numbers have exceeded $100 billion. And those are unprecedented numbers. And as you mentioned, it, it's not coming from the hurricanes. It's from these, you know, multi-billion dollar events like wildfires, spirit convective storm, which is, you know, the frequency and inhale events. And so, you know, our clients in the Midwest and buyers in the Midwest and Dallas are seeing their rates increase as well. Um, from, you know, a hail standpoint, they're being faced with increased deductibles and also, you know, some carriers reluctant to offer coverage in those states, too. My reporting has revealed, and I, and I mentioned this uh, when I introduced you, that it's even kill, killing deals that you some developers might have a whole deal put together to to build a real estate property. And then they go in and they find out that what it would cost them to buy insurance for that property would completely erase any kind of profit margin. And so they walk away from the deal. My question is, is there any state where insurance is priced right and the climate risk is manageable? I mean, that's a tough one because we're, we're in a global property market. So what happens in Florida impacts, you know, someone sitting in Illinois. You know, I, I would say there is a big disconnect between what the lender's expectations of what's available and what's you know, what a client can afford uh, because they're the ones lending on these deals. But, um, you yeah. know, obviously the, the tougher areas, again, are, you know, the 
coastal Florida, California, but no one's immune, unfortunately, from these rate increases. Martha, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Appreciate that. Let's get to quicker than the ticker, all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. The TSA screened more than 32 million people at airports this holiday season, a 15% increase from 2022, and more people than the population of Texas. Hershey sued for false advertising. A Florida woman is seeking $5 million, claiming Reese's holiday-themed chocolates don't resemble what's on the actual packaging. Did a 13-year-old just become the first person ever to beat Tetris? Oklahoma teen Willis Gibson posted on YouTube that he advanced so far in the original Nintendo game, it froze, a feat only done before by AI. Gibson got to level 157, reaching Tetris kill screen, a point where limitations in the code freeze the game. Meet the American Kennel Club's 201st dog breed, the Lancashire Healer. The breed is the herding group's newest member. They are usually 9 to 17 pounds, with a lifespan between 12 and 15 years. Which would you rather, get a Lancashire Healer puppy or beat Tetris? Coming up, it sounds like a miracle, too good to be true. How on earth did U.S. flight cancellation hit their lowest level in more than a decade? We get some answers next. Welcome back. If you traveled at all last year, you may have noticed that the airports are a lot busier than they used to be. And as we mentioned earlier, more people, 32 million travelers, took the skies this holiday season. If you think more people means more cancellations, you might want to think, rethink that. Because according to the Department of Transportation, flight cancellations in the United States fell to the lowest levels in more than a decade. Fewer than 1.2% of the 16.3 million flights last year were canceled in the U.S. And for this past holiday season, it was even better. Fewer than 1%. Now, earlier today, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joined CNBC, and he talked about that accomplishment. Thanksgiving and the summer holidays had all-time record highs in terms of the number of passengers streamed by uh, TSA. The Sunday after Thanksgiving was the most recorded in American history. So uh, really pleased to see the, these dramatic improvements in performance by the, uh, by the airlines here. Well, how did that happen at a time of record travel? Joining me now, travel expert Lee Abamante, who's traveled to every country in the world and writes about it on his blog. And I got sucked into that today. We, <laughs> I can't wait to talk about Mogadishu, Somalia, but not now. <laughs> Lovely place. Uh, listen, I, the, the question that I have is that clearly the Transportation Department would like to take some credit for the fact that cancellations are, are down. But do... Do they deserve some of the credit? Well, if you go by what has been reported and what's been said by the secretary and others in the administration, after the Southwest debacle last year, they really did put pressure on the airlines. And obviously, uh, airlines other than Southwest didn't want to be in the same situation, which happened with them. So they did invest in technology and in, uh, in people. And that's really helped for sure. And the administration has incentivized them to basically not uh, do these crazy schedules and overbook significantly and basically try to uh, uh, tone it down. And it has also threatened to do uh, monetary penalties like they do in Europe uh, to continue to make it go down. So we'll see what happens with that. I hope it happens. You know, the other factor here that we didn't mention, but 
over the holidays, there was no significant weather to speak of. Yeah. I mean, when there are, I was just traveling and there was a lightning storm and there was a massive crowd of people and they couldn't move people on and off the planes because the lightning in Florida was so bad. It was crazy. When you yeah, obviously go ahead. Yeah, obviously you're at the mercy of Mother Nature in a lot of uh, aspects of travel, right? And like when Southwest did have the debacle last year, there was also some terrible weather, which is kind of what spearheaded the whole issue. So this year we've been lucky thus far, uh, especially around major holidays. So hopefully that continues. Top advice for you, given how much you travel, for avoiding cancellations and those kind of delays that mess everything up. Well, I always tell people to take the earliest flight possible because if there is a cancellation or delay, you'll have the best opportunity to get out. Like if you take uh, the last flight in the day, there's a pretty good chance if it gets delayed or canceled, you're not getting out till the next day. Uh, also, follow along on the app, like track your flight. And if you have to make changes, do it on the app so you don't have to deal with customer service either on the phone or at the airport. And it just makes your life a whole lot easier. And uh, most importantly, don't check bags unless you have to and try to fly direct just because it just makes your life a lot easier and it gives the airlines less of an opportunity to kind of mess you up themselves. Last one, <laughs> quick answer. How much time do you give yourself to get to the airport? Uh, I am not the person I would recommend, but I get there about 30 <laughs> minutes ahead of time because I'm just like that and I never check a bag. But I wouldn't recommend that to everybody else. Do an hour, like they say. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's me. All right. Lee Abamonte, uh, the travel expert and a travel blogger as well. Thank you so much for your exper experience and your advice for us. We appreciate that. Thank you. Do you know what happened 47 years ago today? A momentous occasion for Apple. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak incorporated the company. A few months later, they unveiled the Apple II, the first personal computer in a plastic case with color graphics. In 1980, Apple made its public debut on Wall Street. And two years ago, to the day, Apple became the world's first $3 trillion company, January 3rd. It was a special day for Apple. And thank you for watching Last Call. Just a reminder again, Brian will be back tomorrow, but it's a very special tomorrow. It's Last Call in Miami. You can tune in at 7 Eastern. He has a great lineup of guests. Plus, you know, it's Brian in Miami. You never know what's going to happen. That's it for me here in Last Call. Hope you have a fantastic night. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.